We have quite the task ahead of us here. To, to give you a full introduction to Revelation, it, it just isn't even possible. I did some of that last service. I'm going to do a very small repeat of some of it here. But then what we're going to do instead is dig into some of the most exciting slash confusing sections of Revelation. Most notably, perhaps, you've heard of this, the mark of the beast. We're going to figure out what that is today, try to place it in its context. But we're also going to lead off from the end of the reading we just heard read from chapter 20, where this beast is going to be mentioned as having been conquered by Jesus right at the start of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is on page 1040 of your pew Bible, again, in Revelation chapter 20. It's verse, excuse me, chapter 19, uh, verse 19. It says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Now, as I said a few moments ago, that's Jesus, right? Jesus is on that horse. And whether this is when he entered Jerusalem on the colt or whether that is right now, doesn't matter. It's both. It's both. He is king of kings, he is lord of lords, and he has certainly, at this point in our history, triumphed over the devil, cast him out of heaven, bound him with a great chain. But again, here's this beast. Why am I pointing to that? Because we're going to talk about where this beast come from in just a moment. The beast, verse 20, was captured. With it, the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. Second time it's mentioned in the book. We're going to go back and look at where it comes from. Those who worshipped his image, the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That's, That's hell or a picture of hell or the illusion that there is a hell. Hell is the fire that does not go out where the worm always is biting you and where the rot never stops. It's kind of a terrifying idea. What's it prepared for? The beast and the devil That's who it's prepared for. The devil, the dragon, we're going to see in just a second, he will be cast into the fire, but he's not cast into the fire at the same time that the beast is cast into the fire. There's a difference that goes on here, right? And that's what verse uh, one of chapter 20 is going to start talking about. So there's this other battle that's taking place. And I love to see it as the battle on the cross, by the way. When Christ is dying on the cross and the serpent is piercing his feet, His head is being crushed as this mighty angel is casting him out of heaven with a great chain. Verse 1 of chapter 20, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. The bottomless pit. This is death. This is death. He's going to chain up death. He's going to break the bonds of death. He's going to bind the devil whose power is death. All that's going to take place as he seizes the dragon. That ancient serpent, so think of Genesis chapter 3, the snake in the garden, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, deceiving Adam and Eve so that they eat from that tree. This is not a garter snake. This is a dragon. Now, not a dragon like your fantasy fiction with wings. I don't know what he looks like. Old world dragons were just really big lizards without legs. Yeah, so that's what he is, the ancient serpent, but he's a dragon. The word, in fact, in Greek is dracon. We even get the word from there. Yeah, he is the devil. That means like a demon, right? And he is Satan. That means accuser. 
None of these are his proper name, although you can call him by many names. In any case, he is bound for a thousand years and thrown into the pit, and it's shut and sealed over him so that he may not deceive the nations, cling to that word nations in your head, any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Okay. So here's our introduction into the fact that a lot of people think Revelation is about the end of the world. They think the whole story is a roadmap for how to pin the tail on the Antichrist right before the end of the world. So even though Jesus, our Lord, is so clear about that day, no one knows the day or the hour. There is no sign that will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah that he will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Other than that, there are no signs. In spite of that, we think John wrote a whole book telling us how to pin the tail on the end of the world. There's a lot of Christians out there that believe this and that teach this. And let me tell you, they make a lot of money on it too. And a key part of their system, their way of understanding this is what you call millennialism. It's a big word, I know. Can you say it with me though? Millennialism. It means to believe that there is a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, literally, that is, specifically on earth, in Jerusalem, from a temple that has been rebuilt, probably with the help of the United Nations and the nation-state of Israel, if you listen to the way they teach it now. That is not what any Lutheran, or frankly, any Protestant, really, thought until the late 1800s. And even the idea of premillennialism, there were some few in the early churches, the first 300, 400 years, who did think there would be a thousand-year reign of Christ. What most people believe today is way beyond that. It's often fantasy land. Now, but, but, to understand why there is not a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, but there is instead an eternal thousand-year reign of Christ that is in heaven and the new earth and has begun already, right? You have to kind of get the whole section of the book. And from there also, you have to understand that nothing in Revelation is being done strictly literally. So, you ready? We're going to move a little fast here. I want you to turn back to chapter 1. Chapter 1. John tells you at the beginning of the book of Revelation that he's not speaking literally. He tells you this. He tells you it's a book of symbols. And he does it in chapter 1 when he sees Jesus. And don't get me wrong. I think he sees Jesus. I think Jesus' eyes are on fire. I think he's got a golden slash. I I think it is a true vision of Christ. But the thing is that Jesus isn't alone when he sees him. Verse 16 of chapter 1. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was shining like the sun in full strength. There's also, around him, it says right before this, seven lampstands. Imagine these being like these candle stands that we have up here. Seven of those. So he's in the middle of seven of those, and he's holding seven stars in his hand. Now, John's going to tell you this scared him to death, and he fell over dead. Jesus said, you know, fear not. Dude, it's me. Remember, we ate fish by the seashore after I rose from the dead, right? Okay, I got you. You're written in my scars, right? But he says, verse 19, Write, therefore, the things you have seen. So he commissions him to write this book. And then verse 20, he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, 
and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Do you see what he did there? The stars and the lampstands are symbols of things that really are. But the seven churches are not actually lampstands. They're, they're churches, right? And the seven stars are not actually uh, stars. They're, they're angels, probably not angels like you think of them, probably the preachers in the churches. And he's about to, right after this, write a letter to seven very real churches. He's going to list them. You can see Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. It's the first sevenfold structure of the book of Revelation. Uh, there are four sevenfold structures. We won't spend much time on this, but there's seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls of wrath. And that's the whole book. Okay, But these seven churches were really churches filled with real people who got the letter and read it. And it was not only written to them, you must believe they understood it. Because if they didn't understand it, they would not have kept it and passed it forward as scripture. They would have said, who wrote this? What is this about? They kept it, yeah, because they understood it. Which is how you know, not only that the book is symbolic, it says so right there. Stars are churches, excuse me, lampstands are churches. That's a metaphor, the definition of a symbol. Yeah? But on top of that, it can't be only about the end of the world because they understood it. It applied to them. So instead of thinking that Revelation is about the end of the world, think of Revelation as being about the New Testament era. It's about what life is like now that Jesus has risen from the dead, which is the beginning of the end of the world. But again, there are no specific little details in here. So you're going to know whether or not we're really living in the last, 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 last times right now or not. We, we just can't know. Now, and you want to talk about opinions? You know, do I think we're near the end of Western civilization? Sure, sure looks that way. I don't know. Yeah, that seems bad. But does the end of Western civilization mean the end of the world? It's pretty arrogant to assume so. It's pretty arrogant to assume so. There are civilizations greater than ours have collapsed. You ever heard of Byzantium? It was a massive Christian civilization, far more righteous than we've ever been. And the things that they established and were able to build, way better than smartphones. Huh? Uh, the Church of the Holy Spirit, Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom, over there in Byzantium. Uh, an amazing place. It's so beautiful, the Muslims didn't tear it down. It's like one of the only things they didn't tear down when they conquered it. It's so glorious. They didn't, they didn't want to ruin it, right? So that civilization collapsed. Collapsed. Uh, so it, what, what, ours? I don't know. So when you see these preachers, though, pointing at George, not George Bush, that's just my age, pointing, <laughs> uh, pointing at Donald Trump and Joe Biden and saying, see here it says in Revelation this, that, yada, yada, they're lying to you. It's not about them, at least not specifically as if there's only one fulfillment of this. But as we're going to see with these beasts, there is a recognition that government, human government, is never on our side as the church. Even when it's on our side, it's like having a chained beast that one moment might turn around and bite you. And you ever see someone who owns a wolf? I actually have. It's kind of a strange thing too. But Okay, so we've established symbolism, right? Stars, lampstands. It's about symbols. Back to the thousand years. You don't have to turn there, but the thousand-year reign of Christ, this is either a literal thing or like everything else in the book, like the 144,000 people that get saved. It's not very many, by the way, if that's all there is. The it's a symbolic number. So what is a thousand? It's 10 times 10 times 10 or 10 cubed, right? 10, like the 10 commandments, is a number of totality. It's a number of completion. Three, you should be very clear on, is the number of God. It's the Trinity. 
right? It's who our God is. So you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit ruling completely. 10 times 10 times 10. Thousand. There you go. What it is is that relationship with man and God has been restored entirely forever and ever and ever. That's the thousand year reign of Christ. Let's just import that to the 144,000 for fun. All right. What is that? 144,000 is 12,000 times 12,000. Okay. So we already got a thousand is God's complete control of everything. 12. This is the number of Israel, the number of the church. You got 12 tribes. You got 12 apostles. In the book, you're going to see 24 elders. Again, that's 12 plus 12. Yeah. But now we have 12,000. This is the complete reign of God in the Old Testament and the complete reign of God in the New Testament combined 144,000, all the saints in history. And John looks and there's an uncountable number and they're all dressed in white robes and clothed in the blood of the lamb. Yeah? So you only get there though, if you can admit, this is talking symbolically. This is talking symbolically. Okay, so the thousand year reign of Christ is symbolic, but what of this part where it says, after that he, the devil, must be released for a little while? How is the devil going to be released after the thousand year reign of Christ? I think, I think the key to this is to understand two things. First, what he says next about the first and the second resurrection, the first and the second resurrection, and then also understanding that after in Greek and for John throughout this book doesn't always mean later. Don't assume after means time. We are so bound by time thinking the clock runs our lives. This is not the only way that something comes after. When I go out of the church this morning, I will go after the cross. It doesn't mean only that I'm later than it in a race, but I'm also behind it. I come after it. Okay? So what goes on behind the thousand-year reign of Christ? There is a release, a little season of time where the devil's able to destroy and deceive the nations. Now, I said cling to that word nations. Let's run this through Matthew chapter 28, a very clear text. You should know it by memory by now. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So what is the reign of God going to do? It's going to save people from the nations. What's the devil's little season going to try to do? Deceive the nations. What's going on right now? Christianity, saving people out of all nations into a thousand year everlasting reign of God. What's the devil doing right now? Deceiving many of the nations, running underground, trying to scheme and destroy. All right. And so to understand then the connection between this thousand year reign of Christ and the little season of Satan's escape, you got to see them not as one and then the other, but more like there's an order where one is stronger and the other is beneath it. And inside of that, then in chapter 20, if you did turn there, he talks about this first and second resurrection. I'm going to go ahead and read this part out loud. Chapter four. Middle of the verse, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand year reign were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. All right. So, Paul is very clear in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. There's going to be one resurrection from the dead physically. 
There's going to be a loud trumpet and an archangel blast and the dead in Christ will rise. He says in 1 Thessalonians, we should comfort each other with this knowledge. This is so certain. This is our one hope. This is what we know more than anything else we can ever possibly know. So what's John getting at? Wait, there's a second resurrection? Now, this all becomes very clear when you as a good Lutheran remember that to be justified by faith is to be saved. It's not merely to be committed to a theory about how you're saved. It's to be raised from the dead right now through faith being created in your heart. It's to be regenerate before God in his sight. Yea, though he dies, yet he will never die. Why? Because he's participated in the first resurrection, which is to believe in Jesus and reign with him forever, which you are already doing right now. Over such, death has no power. The second death would be, what would that be? After death? And then the second resurrection, that's of the bodies, that even the unbelievers are going to get raised in their bodies. What's the second death? Yeah? So on the day of resurrection, you have those who are raised with the second resurrection who don't have the first, no faith. And you have those who do have the first, that's us. We enter paradise. Those who don't have the first resurrection, no faith, where are they going? Hell. The second death. No power over you. All right. Now, again, this is all about reigning with Christ for a thousand years. You really want that to end? I can't believe that people think that that really ends. There's some like place where the devil outwits Jesus later. The whole point of the book is he never outwits Jesus. He's always being led by the nose. It's a great image from Ezekiel. He says to him, I will make you come to me. I'll put a hook in your nose and I'll pull you to me and I will destroy you. He's always doing that to the devil. Yeah. And so to believe that that's at the heart of all of this. Revelation is not going to teach you something new. It's going to restate with glorious imagery what all the rest of the Bible clearly says. Okay, so with all that said, let's see what we can do in about 20 minutes here with chapter 12 and chapter 13. Some people call this an interlude. An interlude, I don't think it is. Um, I think it is a continuation of the seventh trumpet and that there aren't any interludes in Revelation. But what you have, I said, the structure of sevens, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. Uh, Each of those things happens and then there's a result. So uh, the lamb breaks a seal and you see a rider who is out making war, right? Or you see one who's out with scales that are uneven, right? Or you see uh, a trumpet is blown and lightning and thunder begins to happen. So each of these things opens a little scene and these scenes repeat so that each one is a full history of the world. So the seven seals go from creation and fall to the end of the world in the resurrection. And then the last one also starts the trumpets, which go from creation and fall all the way to the end of the world in the resurrection. And then the last trumpet, it opens up a whole other story that ends up with these seven censors of wrath coming, which goes all the way each time to the end of the world. So the world ends three times in the book of Revelation, not because the world's going to end three times like the premillennials want to teach you, Uh, but because it's zooming around in a circle and getting closer and closer to the great glory of what we know to be true. The hope gets bigger and bigger. So by the end of the book, the rider on the right horse is there. The great white throne judgment is happening. The new heavens and new earth, Jerusalem is coming down and we as resurrected people are entering into it forever. What we see in chapter 12 and 13 is part of the seventh trumpet. Uh, So it's going from the trumpets to the bulls of wrath, and it's giving a very narrow picture of what was happening in history at the time of this writing. But it's doing it, again, as a giant symbol 
that, I'm going to say this word carefully, fractally reflects forward through history. Fractal. It's a really cool world word. If you go and, and do a, a YouTube, YouTube, you go and do an internet search for fractal, you'll see some pictures of this. They do it with algorithms and codes. There are also some plants in nature, though, that grow fractally. What it means is that every part of the plant or the image is exactly the same as the rest of it. So the whole picture gets made up of smaller pieces of the same picture all the way down to its, like, it's not atomic, but it's, it's cellular level. It's really amazing. These things exist in nature. And again, we can do them with, uh, with codes and they can make kind of computer art with it. But that is also the way that God's work in history works. He never changes it. He just kind of refracts it. It opens up and it's bigger and different while the same. And all the time it gets more clear what the image is because it's expanding and rolling forward. So these beasts we're about to talk about, they still exist, but they're just not the same exact beasts, literally, as they were back then. But they are still here because they're always here. They're always here. They're always a threat to the church. The mark of the beast is always the same thing, even though we're going to see it's, it's a very specific man in this book. Okay, so here we go. And again, I, I know we're moving fast on this one, but oh, I, I can't help myself. I love this book so much. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1. He says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So, is this Mary, Queen of Heaven? Someone said no. And you're right, and yet you're wrong. Because, well, she's not Queen of Heaven, uh, except for that she's a member of the Bride of Christ like the rest of us who are going to marry Christ the Son. And so, indeed, we all are part of this holy church, our mother, yeah, from whom, in the Old Testament, Jesus comes. He's, in fact, born of the church according to the flesh. So it's kind of yes and no, but Mary, Queen of Heaven, as a co-redemptrix of salvation, yeah, definitely reject that idea. Reject that idea. But the 12 stars around her head. So see this as the church, but in the person of ancient Israel, the people, the 12 tribes, waiting for Jesus to come. Yeah? Whether it's the time of the judges or the time of the kings, they're pregnant with the promise that a son will be born of woman. That's the first sign. And another sign, verse 3, appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, And on his heads, seven diadems. Now, here you see something that's a hint to to how or who this dragon wants to be. Because he's taken two numbers that don't belong to him. The number 10 and the number 7. I said the 10 is the number of completion. 7 is the number of holiness. The number of holiness, like the Sabbath day, the day of rest, the day of holiness. Here he is attempting to be holy and complete. You know this. The devil's goal is to be God. He's not going to be God, but he wants to be God. He's presenting himself to the world as the world's God. And he's got power. He's got authority on his head. Okay. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. We're going to move fast here. That's the angels. 
That's the angels, right? So in all the company of heaven, when there's a great war and there's a rebellion, about a third of the angels join the devil's side. Yeah? What's a third? Is it like 66.6 angels? Oh, look at that. But is it like that? Is it 33.3 angels? No. I, what a third is, is it's a large minority. It's a large minority. There's a lot of angels that fell, but not even close to 50%. Right? You see that? Yeah? So a third of the stars join him. A third of the angels join him. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Yeah? So his plan is to wait and to watch and understand what God's plan is and try to defeat the plan. And of course, he'll do that by submitting to the temptation to kill Jesus. Right? He wants to destroy Jesus. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's that white rider that we saw uh, in chapter 20. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. There's the ascension, right? So he does his work and then he ascends into heaven. And the woman, she's still stuck on earth. She fled into the wilderness. That's us now. New Testament church in our 40 year sojourn through the wilderness, like the people of Israel of old, where she has a place prepared for her to which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This one's a fun one. 1,260 days is about three and a half months. Three and a half is about half of seven. So if you understand from the book of Daniel and the 77s that all of history is also its own form of seven, then this 1,260 days is half of history, right? So for half of history, there's a woman with 12 stars. She's going to give birth. She finally gives birth. He does his work. She goes away. She remains for the other half of history. Now, it's, it's nothing new, right? It's exactly what we know we believe. Um, by the way, I said three and a half months. I was wrong about that. Uh, 1,260 days is three and a half years, and it is 42 months. Number 42 is a fun one in the Bible, too. It only shows up a few times. Um, I, I love that number. All right, so, but with this, behind this, as this, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fighting back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. That means before God's face, right? He's no longer able to accuse us like he accused Job before God's face. He can't do it anymore. Why? Because of the wounds in Jesus' hands. Yeah. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Remember, in chapter 19 and 20, he's put in a pit with a bound chain. But here, he's just down here on earth. Same place. He's down here in death with us. He's stuck down here in death with us. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, verse 10, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Notice all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. For the accuser, that Satan of our brothers, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have loved not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That includes, by the way, all Christians who have died. Huh? Rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to you, earth and sea. 
For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. There's another way of talking about that little season where he's behind God's reign and working to deceive as many people as possible. And he's in a rage. He's in great malice. He knows he cannot win now. All he can do is drag you down with him. That's his goal. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had been given birth to the male child, right? So what's his tact? Does he care about power and glory now? No, he just wants to destroy the church. That's his tact. That's what his game is. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Another reference to three and a half years. Time, a year, times, two years, half a time, half a year, three and a half years. The rest of history, the church is always going to be able to escape the devil's rage and attack with these marvelous wings of our faith, uh, trusting in Christ Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And notice the connection between land and and sea right there. The dragon is actively over earth and ocean as an attack on the descendants of Christianity. What does it mean now, though, for him to be over earth and ocean? This is where these two beasts are going to show up. Verse, chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. Sound familiar? Ten horns, seven heads? Yeah. Um, it was the other way around. It was seven, uh, ten heads and seven horns when he's a dragon. Uh, but now here he is. It's kind of a, he's morphed. He's become something else. It's, it's not the devil himself. It's the devil's mm, beast. Okay. Uh, and uh, blasphemous names on its heads. It's unholy. It's a seven that's been made unholy. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Okay, leopard, bear, lion. You got to go deep. We did this, I don't know, it was two months ago or so. We're in the book of Daniel. And there's this vision of these four different beasts, which represent four different kingdoms. They end up being uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And here you have all of them pushed into one beast. So the easy takeaway from this is all the authority, the princedoms of the power that the devil has is the governments of whatever age you live in. At this time, it was still Rome, carrying with it the power of Greece and Persia, to be sure, having claimed to be the greatest civilization that there ever was. And in many ways, they were. But here, what you have then is an image of human government under the tyranny of Satan. This is why it's so easy to look at this book and think, oh, it's what our government's doing. It's because it's always what our government's doing. It's always what our government's doing. It's putting itself in the place of God. The greatest lie of the last two years is the idea that we're all going to be safe because our government's going to protect us. I mean, just just run that through reality for 15 seconds. It, It doesn't jive, right? They want you to believe in immortality on the basis of human action. Yeah, that's the lie. 
Now, at the time this is being written, the government is Caesar. Huh? And to some extent, are you supposed to give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Yeah, Jesus says that very clearly. This is not a treatise on rebellion. It's a treatise on who you should trust. Huh? Don't trust the power of the devil, which is the human government that is always trying to make the world into heaven in order to, as we just saw, destroy the church. All right, verse three says this about this beast. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled that they followed the beast. Right? So uh, you can see this either as the fact that the devil is mortally wounded and is going to die, but he's kind of like walking around with his bashed head right now. Or you can see it as uh, Rome has just never really ended and it never really will end. And this is sort of what comes out of that other Daniel vision about the statue with the golden head, the silver chest, the bronze legs, and the feet of clay and iron. There's 10 toes of clay and iron that are 10 kings. Now remember, 10, don't think literally and try to pin the tail on the kings. It means there's always going to be another weak version of Rome arising with clay and iron trying to unite the world under one great idea. Uh, and it never happens. It's got a mortal wound, though, and, and it's alive. So people are like, oh, we can do it. Oh, the republic will live, yada, yada. You put in whatever story you want, from the Bolsheviks to the Marxists to whoever. It doesn't matter. It's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. They worship the dragon, verse 4, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? You can apply that to most state governments, I think, if you're actually a citizen in the state. Huh? Who, and I don't mean like United States. I mean the state, the idea of a ruling government that is a, a nation state, right? Who can fight against it? Isn't it amazing what we've done? Look how great we've become. Um, putting your trust in such things is the problem. Verse 5, the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. There you have that three and a half years thing again. That's the second half of history. Right? So this, this government of destruction that is the devil running government to destroy the church, that's all he cares about. He doesn't care about how your roads look. He cares about how the church is doing, and he always is going to try to destroy the church. He's going to do this for the rest of time. Yeah? It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That is, it's allowed to look like we're losing. And it does in most of history. It looks like the church is losing. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Again, it's all countries at all times. Yeah? And all who dwell on earth will worship it. That is, if they don't worship Christ, what else are they going to worship? But their king, now, whoever that might be. Now, whoever says, I can show you a better future, follow me. And the human heart will worship that man. Everyone whose name had not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So again, you are not to be deceived. This is the very promise that he's given you, that you're not such to worship the beast. You're not such to believe that your country is more important than your religion. It's as simple as that, yeah? Um, and that is the great deception, to believe your country is more important than your religion. Um, I don't want to go too far on this tangent, but I do think that one of the great modern pictures of this is on your dollar bill, 10, 20, doesn't matter. 
on your dollar bill with all the other Masonic whatever imagery that they've come up with on it. I, I don't know much about it, but it's weird. You look at it sometimes, study it. There's weird stuff on your money. But along with all of that, you have this little phrase, in God we trust. Don't for a second think that means in Jesus we trust. It never has, it never will. It doesn't say in God, the Father of Jesus Christ. It says in God, just generally, some great God. And honestly, I do believe it means in that dollar bill. In the mammon itself. This is the God. Here, look how we run the world with it. That is the age we're living in right now, right? So again, you see on the money itself, the claim to have the power of God on its side. And that is what we just don't want to be deceived by. I'm not saying don't use your dollars. You got to go buy groceries. Use your dollars. But give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But realize that's what it is. It's Caesar's. And that Caesar's under the power of the devil. Don't be deceived by that. Know that he's actually going to try to harm you. And he's been given power to kill you. And he will someday, one way, somehow. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. That's for you, Christian. If you're going to be martyred, you're going to be martyred. Uh, like, don't fear it. Like, be like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, that's the way to go. Uh, uh. So, like, own it. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. I'd love to go chase those words. They're, they're big words in the book. But we got to get to the second beast here. we got just about five minutes. Um, so then we see, remember, this is beast out of the sea. Beast out of the sea. I made the claim based on what it looked like. This is Rome or an incarnation of Rome. Think about where you are if you're these seven churches that John's writing the letter to. Now, maybe you don't know. So here's my, my map. You have um, uh, Italy and you have Greece and you have what we call Turkey, Asia Minor. And then you have Israel. He's not writing to Israel. He's writing to Asia Minor. Ephesus and Smyrna and all this over here. So you got Asia Minor and you have a beast that we know is Rome coming out of the sea. You see that? Huh? So the, the governmental power to get to them is coming across the ocean to get to them. Now we have another beast who's not going to come from Rome, not going to come across the water. We have another beast, verse 11, rising out of the earth. Let's, oh, before I go too far with the text, let's keep our map here if you're, if you're following me. So Italy, Greece, Asia Minor, Israel. Look at that. It's connected by land. All right. So this second beast is going to come from the land. Kind of hat tip where we're going. It's the synagogue. It's the synagogue. It doesn't mean always the synagogue. It means false religion. But the false religion is going to arise and attack the church the same way that government is going to arise and attack the church. Attack the church. So let's, let's make that case here. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. And it spoke like a dragon. Perhaps you've heard the phrase Judeo-Christian. You ever heard that phrase? It's fairly new, just the last hundred years. And it's a way to scuttle into you know, elite common talk uh, the idea that Christianity and Judaism are just kind of two sides of the same thing. And with this is the idea, maybe, maybe you've heard this, that um, there's a different path of salvation for the Jews. Many people who believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ believe the Jews don't actually need Jesus to be saved. So that goes right with this idea. But rather than see Judaism as like part of Christianity or almost Christianity, you have to understand Judaism as first-century Pharisaism is founded on the rejection of Jesus. That's its most substantial teaching. In fact, if you wanted to unify all of the Jews in the world today, 
Even the Sabbath wouldn't keep them together because there are atheistic Jews who just don't care. But I tell you what they do. They reject Jesus. Is a single unifying factor of not their race, but of their religion. That's one of the other lies. Certainly, are there, is there a nation of people with a bloodline descended from Judah that call themselves the Jews? Yes. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the religion of Judaism. If it happens to be that many of this nation also have that religion, that's their choice. And again, it's their choice to reject Jesus. Yeah? So don't be deceived into thinking it's like Christianity, like a lamb, right? Our God is the lamb who was slain. Here's a lamb with two horns that talks like a dragon. It tries to look like Christianity, but it's not Christianity. Now, someone might say, but, but wasn't David a Jew? And it's like, well, he was, he was a son of Judah. He's born of Judah, but no, he was, he was an Israelite. He was one of the 12 tribes descended from Jacob, descended from Abraham. And they weren't really called the Jews until after the Babylonian captivity. He might've been called a Hebrew, but by and large, he was called the king of Israel. Huh? So Judaism is very much a post-exilic reality that, gets founded with the destruction of their temple and the rejection of Jesus Christ. And yet they continue to try to chase Christianity through the first century world to destroy it. They sent people after Paul to get him arrested. They had Christians killed. I'm not talking about a nation again. I'm talking about a religion that hates Jesus. So now let's stop thinking about Judaism and just think about all religions that are not Christianity hate Jesus. And they attack Jesus because Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And they're like, but we're all the same. You're with us. And he's like, no, you're not. And I'm not. And they're like, we'll kill you then. And that is how hard it gets and how ugly it gets. Okay. So horns like a lamb, speaks like a lion, exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. This pretty key Johannine thinking. It's in John's gospel at the moment of the passion, right before Jesus is crucified. They're standing at 6 a.m. in the morning. They're at the, the governor's court. Jesus is about to be contemned. And, and Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And he says, the Jews cried out, we have no king but Caesar. And they said, worship Rome. We worship Rome. What do we take from that though? Remember the fractal idea. What this means is that false religion will always tell you do what false government or tyrannical government says. It will always eventually push you back to and work with the government to try to destroy Christianity. That is a, a, a reflection. That is something that we can just expect to echo again and again throughout history. Many people think the Bolshevik revolution in Russia was not a religious revolution, but it was zealously religious. It was a religion of no God. And if you believed in a God, then we needed to kill you. That is a religious movement of destruction and tyranny. These are, these are common in history. People have been doing this. There's genocides going on in Africa right now. And this is, this is, it continues to happen. And Christians are always, always what the devil's after in this. Again, if by the sword you're going to be slain, oh well. It doesn't mean you have to be. Pray to Jesus for peace. You know? Absolutely. But, okay, so, uh uh, verse 13, it performs signs and great wonders, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of people. And by the signs that it allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. 
Um, without going too deep on that, just don't miss. It's a sign of false religion that they can do miracles. That's what it says. They're given power to do miracles. One of the surest ways to try to talk to someone who's dead is to speak with a witch. And if you do, you might get a voice that shows up and you might have some candlesticks tremble on the table. It really does happen. It doesn't mean you're actually talking with the dead. It means you're praying to demons. But don't miss this. Miracles are not a New Testament era thing post-apostles. Certainly the apostles were giving the signs of miracles. They did things, amazing things. They healed people with their sleeves and stuff. But that all passed away. And we're given plenty of warnings to see that when teachers come saying, look at the miracles, look at the miracles, it's a sign they're lying to you especially if it's true. Yeah, that means they're working with demons. Better to have the guy who's pretending to lie to you or pretending to do miracles than the one who actually doesn't. So just don't miss that there. Verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. I, I don't think that's about TV, but golly, golly, Look at it. Uh, verse 16, also it causes all both small and great, both poor and rich, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. Okay. Um, I'll answer the 666 question in just a second, but let's get the big picture here. What is this mark of the beast? Remember, we're talking about a beast that comes out of the sea, or excuse me, start over, a beast that comes out of the land that is false religion, that in order to attain its power, will use all of its wonders to get you to think that the beast out of the sea, which is human government and human civilization, is really what life's all about, and you should put your trust in yours, and if you're a Christian, it's going to try to drive you out of that. And one of the ways it will do that is it will make it so you can no longer do what you want. You can't buy or sell or trade the way that you want to. And so it will, it will separate you from the masses based upon something. What is it? I don't know. An actual tattoo on your hand? No. No, not an actual tattoo on your hand. But in every era, remember, these are reflecting. There's going to be art. Do you believe this idea? Will you do this thing? Will you join us in this way? And if you don't, you just don't get to be part of the cool crowd. You just don't get to be in and be part of the cool crowd. That's what the mark of the beast is about. It's about standing apart, right? They say, if you want to be part of our civilization, you have to say abortion's okay. You have to say, um, uh, not only can men sleep with men, but we can... Go take five-year-olds and start teaching them about how there, there may be girls if they're boys and boys if they're girls and they can have surgery when they're seven and we won't even tell their parents. And that, that's what they want us to say right now. That's how bad this is. You know, forget a tattoo of a barcode on your hand. They want you to join them. And if you won't join them, they will find ways to exclude you from their world. Now, the way that this was happening at that time is this number 666. So kind of step back for a second. The entire book is written by John from an island that's a prison island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea to these seven congregations in Asia Minor to warn them that persecution is coming and to be very specific about where it's coming from. 
And this is the moment. It's all kind of buried in this symbolism about how in every time and space there's going to be persecution and Jesus is always in charge. He's always going to see you through it. But here he's actually going to say, watch out. I know what kind of persecution is coming. And if you didn't think it was Rome from the previous pictures, uh, this is going to say that it's Rome. Okay, so 666, not 666. That's American or Arabic numerals. This is written out longhand in the Greek, right? Six hundred and like on a check, 66, okay? So we know it's that number. It's written out longhand in the Greek, but if it calls for wisdom and you need to calculate it, that means it is a symbolic math problem. And to make a long story short, if you just put that number into Hebrew, the only way you can put it into Hebrew you get the, the vocables of Nero Caesar. It sounds like Nero Caesar. It just says Nero Caesar, 666. Nero Caesar had already lived and persecuted Christians in Rome. He was dead by this time. But shortly after this, a empire-wide persecution is going to come at the hands of a man named Diocletian, an emperor who despises Christianity. So even the mark of the beast being Nero Caesar isn't saying Nero, it's saying get ready for a second Nero and get ready for it in Asia Minor. Huh? And if you don't, uh, well, if, if you're going to be slain, you're going to be slain. So this calls for endurance and faithfulness and trust. Right? And then it goes on, it goes on, right? We, the next thing we have happening is the lamb and the 144,000. By the way, don't forget he saved everybody he's going to save and you're going to live forever dressed in white robes, every tear wiped from your eyes. So why are you scared of the beasts? And that is what what the whole thrust of the book is. Triumphal entry and then some. Triumphal entry into heaven for all of us. That to die is to live and to be dead is to gain. That certainly it is good to remain here with each other and to love each other in the order that God has given. But it is better by far to depart and be with Christ. That's why Paul longs for it. That's why Stephen is able to look up and, and pray, forgive them. And it's all right, Lord, your will be done as he's stoned to death. It's because they've come to terms with the fact that this life is going to end. And if the mark of the beast then is anything, it's an attempt to not believe that. It's an attempt to not believe that. And if the last two years have been any deception to us, it's been trying to convince us that it's better to give up what we believe and remain here than to cling to what we believe and let the chips fall where they may. It's better to, and I'm going to be very, very direct here, it's better, better to experiment on cloned dead babies in order to try to create an elixir of eternal life than it is to just take it as it comes. And that is the the, the pinpoint, the pivot point that Christianity is at right now. Are we pro-life or not? Now, we are a pro-life congregation, but we struggle with this, have we not? And the deception and the twisting of the news and the claims that things are this or that, yeah, it's not been that easy. So does that mean that if you happen to have had the inoculations, you're not a Christian? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that it's time for us as Christians to wake up and see who these beasts are. That yes, can you have a Christian king who runs a government that works for you? Yes. But if he's not, guess what he is? He's the devil's agent and he hates Christianity. And we got to stop believing other than that so that we are wise for ourselves so that we protect ourselves, so that, and this is where I'm really at with you, St. Paul, so the next time they come along and they say, don't have church on Sunday, we say, no. We say no. Ah. In the name of Jesus, amen.